0: This is Douglas Wynn, author of the Spectrophile series, and you're listening to Legends of Tabletop.
1: Awesome, thank you, sir. Welcome, everybody. So, our uh, latest episode, we uh, we ran into Doug at Necronomicon uh, in this couple of months ago, and uh, again in thirteen. Although I don't, I don't think we talked very much in thirteen, as we were busy scrambling, try to you know get all the uh, RPG guys under uh, under one spot so we can get them on here.
0: <laughs> yeah. the busy, busy convention. Man, there's so many people I want to see there that I just I, you know catch them in passing and. Hope that we'll sync up, but, uh, yeah, it takes over the town.
1: Yeah, I we I I got in on Wednesday night, and, you know, come Friday, it's like, man, the it's almost over, and I feel like we didn't do anything. So, like you said, you, you know, catch people for a minute here or there, you stop somebody in the hallway, and, you know, yeah. trying to take in a couple of panels or whatever, and it just, it seems to blow right by.
0: Yeah, it's mayhem in a good way.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, how was how was this year's Necro for you? Was it uh, as good as,
0: as 13, or? yeah it was great you know i I've been enjoying i like that they do it every other year it it kind of you know I'm sure it's a huge undertaking they put an enormous amount of work into it the organizers i think would would end up in an asylum if they try to do it every year but uh even just for you know people like us who get to enjoy it and participate a little uh it's it's good to have that that extra time i think to uh you know like I can have another book out maybe before the next time Necronomicon comes around. And, uh, there's just, you know, you've got more cumulative stuff to catch up with people on. So that's, that's nice. I had a great time, really had a blast. I've, I've enjoyed how the first time I went, uh, was, was uh, three cons ago. So it was the first time that they were doing it, I think after reviving it. And I didn't know anybody. And I just wanted to meet a couple of people that I had, you know, talked to online, Uh, but each year, you know, they've been, they've been, uh, really generously including me more and more. And so, uh, now it's like, you know, it's like a homecoming. It's, it's just, uh, got so many friends in that community that I look forward to seeing there. So yeah, great time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, the first year we went, it was like we were just kind of jumping into podcasting and the website and everything. So, it was, you know, kind of trepidatiously approaching people I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I'm so-and-so and, we, you know, we're kind of doing a thing. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, sure. Great. Whatever. Friend me on Facebook, you know, send me an email, whatever. Everybody's very welcoming. It's, very, yeah. it's a very cool community to be a
0: part of. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and I, you you were on like four or five panels this year. Do you do you enjoy doing the panels when you come in? Is it is it something you look forward to, or
0: is it more yeah. like? Yeah. Uh, no, know. I do. I, I definitely enjoy that. Um, it's it's uh, <laughs> they tend to use me as much as as you know as I say I'm willing, and usually the topics are so cool that I'll I'll respond with like, oh yeah, you know this this bunch of them look like things I could maybe contribute something to, you know? Um, but that's with the hope that maybe I'll end up on, you know, two or three. Uh, but lately it's been like four. Yeah. So that's, that's a lot of running around. And, but it's, it's always fun in the end. Uh, you know, the, the thing, the tough thing I think is if you have to moderate something, then, then there's more homework to do, you know, more research to do. I try to be prepared. Uh, but uh, this year, the the one that they threw at me to moderate last minute, I was going to be on it, and then they, they, uh, the moderator fell through, so they asked me to moderate the uh, Faithful Frighteners panel, which was about uh, religious horror and, uh, and whether or not atheists can be scared by horror that uses religious tropes and stuff, you know, exploring those, those kinds of themes, which I thought was really interesting, where usually we end up talking Lovecraft and Mythos, and and yeah. this year they broadened the scope of the convention uh, more than ever before, and and we're looking at other influential authors like Shirley Jackson and Arthur Machen. Uh, so yeah, getting to you know have a discussion about things that that go beyond the mythos. As much as I enjoy those other ones, uh, it was fun to branch out. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, we, we, I, I moderated too. This first time I had ever done it, I moderated two panels. It was like, ooh. you know, because Niels was like, well, do you want to moderate? And I'm like, I don't like, maybe, I guess so. <laughs> you know, you know the gig. So what, what did you end up moderating? Uh, it was uh, podcasting for gaming and uh, technology and gaming. Cool. We, we do a ton of gaming for the podcast. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, good. And it went well. You, you had a good time.
1: Yeah, it was good. It wasn't as as uh as terrifying as I thought it was going to be. We got a, you know, a small but decent crowd. Everybody was uh, you know, was engaged with questions and stuff and uh it, it was fun. I'm I'm looking forward to hopefully pitching something again, uh, you know, for the next necker. I'm actually uh I'm doing a panel of podcasting 101 for our uh, local uh Tucson Comic Con uh coming up in a couple of weeks. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, I'm I'm all in at this point.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it- You'll, you'll get ideas from each of those experiences that you'll apply to the next one, right? So that's fun. Yeah. Um, so, so let's jump in. So you're, you have a book that
1: just came out, what, like five, six days ago? Cthulhu Blues, how's uh, that going?
0: Yeah, almost a week ago, last Friday, uh, Cthulhu Blues was released. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, a fun week getting out there finally. Uh, the the third book in my Files trilogy, so this completes that. That story, each book kind of has its own standalone story arc within it. But um, by the time we got to this third one, it's, th- you know, things that I, seeds that I planted in the first book, Red right, Equinox, are finally, uh, you know, coming to fruition. And so, uh, yeah, I got to have the big climactic uh, wrap up. That was, that was great. And and so it seems well received so far. It's, uh, people are just digging into it now, but I've got a, a reading tomorrow night at a bookstore and another one the following week some of my favorite indie bookstores around here that that usually have me in for these. Uh, so yeah, it'll be fun to get out there and uh, celebrate the book. Yeah. That's cool.
1: Well, I, I read online that you don't really outline. So seeds that you've sown in, in red equinox, is that like, you know, how does that work? If you're not outlining, did you originally plan on doing it as a trilogy or did it just sort of morph after the first book?
0: Um, I, I had an idea that it could be, so i uh, I wrote you know the ending of red equinox with with uh, not exactly a big cliffhanger, but definitely with the uh, the suggestion that that more horrible things could <laughs> could emerge. Um, when when that book did well, my publisher said, you know this this would make a good series, you, you know have you considered? you know, doing more of these. And I was already thinking along those lines. So I, I knew there were things I wanted to dig deeper into and, and explore if I had the chance. I feel like Red Equinox has, it's, it's a book that you can read and, and get an ending uh, with, with a little bit of horror, uh, you know, unsettling, uh, you know, possibilities dangled there at the end. But um, some of those threads from Red Equinox, I didn't fully develop until this third book. Uh, there's in book two black january we have a a story that continues the idea of the spectra agency which is the, the special physics emergent counter terror recon agency right it 's kind of a joke on on how these government uh you know mouthful agencies right, right. Um, spy agencies uh are dealing with, you know, all kinds of surveillance now. And, and, uh, and these guys look into weird physics, uh, particularly and type stuff. So in the second book, they investigate a weird house that has shifting architecture. It's, it's, uh, sort of in this liminal place, uh, with regards to space and time. Um, so my main character, Becca, who is not a government agent, but who, who becomes uh, a consultant for this agency after, after being, uh, kind of uh, thrown into a helicopter with a black bag over her head. When she first encounters them by book two, she's, <laughs> she's got a bit of a working relationship with these guys that she doesn't always entirely trust. Um, so that book mainly focuses on on the house. Um, it introduces a, uh, a piece of music that has occult properties uh, that Becca's father studied uh, but we only take a little bit of a detour in book two to look at these children who who uh, were born with special talents as a result of the events of book one. In book three, I finally got to to really uh, deal with those kids, which which was the thing I, I kind of left dangling at the end of Red Equinox, and, and knew I would eventually uh, develop into into the big storyline. So uh, yeah, it was it was interesting to try to sorry rambling here, but to to get back to your question about <laughs> outlining. Um, it's very intuitive process for me, and I will plan ahead a little bit at a time. I'll do forecasts of like you know what might happen in the next thirty thousand words. Uh, what if this happened? What if that happened? Uh, make a lot of notes like that that are kind of rough outline, uh, and that is often subject to change. So yeah, it was a little bit of a high wire act to to put some things out there in the first book that I I thought I could likely explore in sequels, but I didn't, uh, I didn't know how those things would necessarily resolve or develop. Uh, but I, I don't know that when I'm writing a single book. But with a single book, I can go back <laughs> after draft one and, you know, kind of uh, reverse engineer some things. Uh, a little, little bit more risky with with books already out there in print. And, you, and yeah. <laughs> you, you've got to make sure you're consistent uh, while still improvising a little. But that's part right. of the fun for me. If I plan everything, I get bored. And... Uh, I feel like the life got sucked out of the story because I know what's going to happen. I kind of need to be a little bit intrigued and mystified by what's going to happen, even if I have a hunch about it uh, for me to stay excited. Okay. Well,
1: that leads me to, I was jotting down a question and you kind of answered that already. Um, so do you, you know, kind of like maybe when, you know, you know, start a story and, you know, you think it's kind of, kind of going of go in this direction, but then the characters, you know, sort of, find their own voice and, and sort of shift you maybe in another direction from what you originally
0: thought the story might go. Yes, that that's a pretty common occurrence. Um, a lot of things sound like good ideas to me when I jot down a little note and I have this vague sense that I wanted uh, to steer the story in a certain direction. But uh, I think my favorite writers are are typically the ones – who let character drive the story character motivation for me is the most interesting thing about storytelling. And when you put a character with interesting motives and problems, interesting drives, uh, into, into a, uh, a high pressure situation, then watching how they react against those pressures is really where the, the life of the story comes from. So often I'll find out that, when I get to writing a scene that I thought was, I thought I knew what's going to happen. It just doesn't feel right for that character at that time, By everything I know about that character, by the time they arrive at that place in time, I just realize if I'm going to be true to who they are, which is my top priority, then no, it's, it's actually going to go this way a little. It's, <laughs> it's often consistent with, with my ideas, but uh, probably in the specifics, not quite what I had planned. Okay. Um,
1: so coming into Necronomicon, I, I should be somewhat ashamed. My my weird fiction collection was relatively small, um, so I, I tried to rectify that at, at this last necro. So and I picked cool. up some books by Cody Goodfellow, and I you know picked up your book and you know Larry, I mean your your publisher was giving away books for like a nickel. It's like hey, give me a a dollar and I'll give you like thirty books. I don't want to take these home, so like it was a great yeah. deal. <laughs>
0: By the end of the weekend yeah he was he was really trying to empty the table uh as as kind of a promotional effort, uh so he didn't have to drive that stuff uh back yeah yeah <laughs> he, did a, he did a long drive gave away a lot of copies of my second book to promote this uh third one, so uh that was a nice boost for things and to just the right audience
1: yeah uh, it was cool, so it was the the first thing I had read from you, and like right from the from the opening introduction like full on. You know, like like uh, full mythos, like just every you know the house, the the music, the piano, the other dimensions. Like, you know, I'm thinking, i ah, cool. Like, oh my, oh, holy cow! Like, we're we're in, we're all in. This is it.
0: <laughs> oh, good, good. Yeah, you know, you don't have much time to waste when you want to hook a reader. There's so much to read, as you just mentioned. You know, it's just we're living in a great time for. Weird fiction, small press fiction, uh, indie horror in general. There's just so much good stuff out there. I'll never get yeah. to it all. It all.
1: It, I mean, it was more of like a, I guess more of a pulpy than like a traditional, you know, say love creep, but like, you know, all the elements, which I thought was just great. Um, cool. Like you said, it, it really hooked me coming in. So like now I'm kicking myself like, crap, I should have picked up the other books while I was there. So now I got to like Vincent O'Neill. He gave me a, a book for free as we were, you know, heading out, like on the last days, like, Oh, do you read military sci-fi here? Just take this. I'm like, Oh, okay. So I read that one. I'm like, God damn
0: you. <laughs> like, now I got to yeah. go and pick up the other books. Like, come on guys. Yeah. That's, that's part of the, part of what we're doing there, but it's nice to come home with a, you know, jam packed bag full of new books.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I was worried that I might have to pay the extra
0: fee for the flight. <laughs> oh yeah. Excess baggage. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it could happen. Cool.
1: Um, so when when did you start writing and um at what point did you decide that you you know you wanted to pursue this as more of a
0: professional endeavor? I started writing when i was uh, in my young teens um, the The books that really opened up my interest in just my love for storytelling and my my desire to to do it myself was uh a sixth grade teacher introduced us to the Hobbit. And, and so from there, the Lord of the Rings, you know, follows immediately. Uh, read that over the summer after that. Um, upon finishing the Lord of the Rings, a friend of mine at the time uh, had a dad who was a book critic and uh, they had just shelves and shelves. Their house was just a library of, of music and books and uh, a lot of hardcover Stephen King first editions. So my friend hands me, the stand right after Return of the King, and uh, says, "Well, if you liked, if you liked that, <laughs> you'll love this." Right, and uh, you know, it's true that the spirit is is kind of the same. I think King himself, you know, it's, it's his birthday. I'm wearing my you know my shirt today, yeah. uh, you know, just to pay some some homage to his uh, influence. That book, I, I know so many horror writers who that was the one, The Stand uh, was the one, and it really is sort of like Lord of the Rings in, in modern America, uh, you know, this darker, grittier uh, version of the epic fantasy quest, right? So, um, yeah, after that, I just read everything I get my hands on by him, Peter Straub, Clive Barker, and then started going back and looking at H.P. Uh, at Lovecraft. I had already been a fan of, uh, of Poe and Bradbury. My grandmother got me into some of those when she saw that I was interested in darker things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I started writing short stories when I was like uh, probably fourteen, uh, maybe thirteen. I wrote a novel in uh, high school that is probably a horrible uh, what you <laughs> now call urban fantasy. Maybe um, I'm terrified to to even find out uh, how bad that is. But uh, but it was exhilarating to go through that first process. You know, writing it by hand. Um, I had started other things that I'd get like a chapter one and never finish it, but but that was the first time that I that I, you know was completely lost in creating a a long form story and watching it unfold um, again without without really planning it much. Uh, that was such a thrill. But then I got I got seduced by the electric guitar and <laughs> ended up playing in bands, going to music school, becoming a recording engineer. Uh, just a long long winding journey through music that eventually. Uh, when I got burnt out on the music business, uh, moved away from Woodstock, New York, where I was working in a studio, and landed in my wife's hometown, which is Newburyport, where H.B. Lovecraft set, uh, or in, you know, was maybe the inspiration of The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Um, I finally got back to writing, uh, because you can do that without a band. <laughs> you know, you yeah. can <laughs> do the one-man uh, creativity thing as as a writer. And it took a long time to get the first the first book that I attempted finished, and that went through like nine drafts before I started trying to learn about the business and and uh, made some effort to to pitch that to agents and and uh, small presses and um, but that first book I did land with my current publisher uh, journal stone so uh, a long, long winding road to finally getting back to writing
1: yeah, yeah. Um- when did you first discover Lovecraft? To talk about King and, and the Hobbit and all that stuff, did was he one of the early influences on you, or was it more like what you'd said, Stephen King and and
0: Tolkien? And- right, I I, uh, I went back to you know I, I found Lovecraft through that interest in the horror writers of the '80s who would mention him, uh, you know Stephen King, Peter Straub. Um, it's you know it always reminded me kind of like. You're listening to bands that you love, and find out that oh, the guy they listened to—you know, the guitar player who influenced <laughs> the guy I think is awesome. I, you know, I got to hear him now. What, you know, what did he, uh, what did he do that that has that has filtered its way into the newer stuff? So, um, yeah, ironically, it was kind of like going back to find. Um, you know, the blues man who, <laughs> who yeah. might have uh have had that influence. Uh so yeah, there's like a paperback of, of Lovecraft stories out at the time, uh, some really cheap edition with uh with a horrible bloody cover <laughs> on it. Uh <laughs> with my introduction to Lovecraft. I think it was the lurking fear and other stories might have been uh, what they what they slapped on that for a title. Right. But yeah, since then I've obviously gotten much deeper into his uh, whole body of work, especially when I started writing in the mythos. And then the novels, uh, you know, I, I always wanted to do something Lovecraftian. That was one subgenre that I knew I would eventually play with uh, because it, it just, you know, turned me on. But um, once you start getting into, once you dabble in Lovecraft, <laughs> I've, I've noticed, people keep asking you to do more Lovecraft, you know, so all these editors will, you know, pitch things uh, for anthologies, you know, which are pretty, uh, pretty viable, uh, you know, as small press uh, books go, I think Lovecraftian anthologies have proven that they're, uh, that, you know, they, they tend to sell. So uh, yeah, that, you know, the deeper you go, the deeper you have to go. And uh, yeah, now it's, it's a thrill. I've, I've studied a lot of, uh, you know, critical uh, commentaries on his stuff, the annotated editions. And um, I'm I'm at the point now where I kind of look forward to moving back into other areas of horror and, and kind of trying to extract myself just a little bit from, from the mythos having finished this trilogy. Um, there's other things I want to do now.
1: Sure. Sure. I mean, you know, it's like anything you got to catch a little bit of a break and, you know, come back to it with fresh eyes a little bit later on and, you know, kind of expunge it a little bit. Right. Yeah. Uh, Um, do you have any kind of rituals or anything when you're writing, you you know, try to write at a certain time, you, you know, eschew the computer and, you know, have a a thing for a long hand or, or what's
0: your, what's your process like? Um, there aren't any real rituals or rules, uh, for how I get it done. Uh, you know, the word count is, is the key, uh, motivational tool just trying to keep track, trying to set a goal for however many words and try to set, even if I don't have a deadline from a publisher, um, imposing personal deadlines um, and and doing the math. Uh, I use Scrivener these days. I started, you know, the first novel that I wrote, I did longhand. And it took me like five years to do the first draft. And I you know, I was dabbling. I'd do a little bit. I'd work on it for a while. I'd set it aside. i come back to it. Um, increasingly, there are deadlines that, you know, really put – uh, you know, they they do wonders for your focus, right? right. So I, I can't, as much as I'd like to get back to writing something longhand eventually, and I think I will, um, I've had to find tools that will help me not waste a lot of time. Um, Scrivener is one of those, uh, that's a program that will track my word count, and I'll set, if I tell it what my deadline is, then it'll calculate for me with a little meter that turns green as I, you know, from red, red to green as as I get closer to that daily word count, um, so I know how much I've got to hit each day if I'm going to hit the deadline. Um, but beyond that, I just, uh, you know, I run a small business. I've got I've got a young kid. Thank God he's back in school right now. <laughs> Summers are. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm kind of stay-at-home dad, work-at-home guy, uh, don't get anything done. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so whenever I can fit it in, you know, really uh, just I try to write in the morning because um, I'm more focused in the morning, you know, my head is fresh. Uh, that's not always feasible if I'm not getting up super early. Uh, so, yeah, whatever it takes to, to get those words down. And then I just – I love revision because then I can I can see all the – possibilities for connections in the story, things I can enhance. It it reminds me of mixing music where you want to bring out certain themes. uh, You maybe want to mute some, some other things (laughs) to make space where there wasn't. uh, So that's, that's a lot of fun for me, that part of
1: it. Do you try to write every day? I mean, is that a a, a key to it?
0: If you can. If I'm working on a book, then yeah. uh, There are definitely phases, you know, because I you know have like most writers a lot of other commitments and responsibilities besides writing I'm not I'm not writing full time as, as my you know main source of income so um, I'll have to really uh, kind of prioritize what there's only so much time for the for the writing career part of my life so if I'm not writing the first draft of a book then there might be a month where I'm just editing every day, but not generating new text on something. Or I might be like right now, I'm kind of in a mode of promoting every day. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of writing involved in, in getting word out about a book also and, and uh, you know, appearances and stuff. So yeah, I go through cycles like that. But that, that's, I think that's also kind of healthy too, because it just, I get to use different parts of my brain in this sort of revolving sequence. And, and uh, when I do get back to writing every day for a new project, then uh, I can just totally focus, and, and that's fun.
1: Cool. Um, you know, you're Talking about, you know, maybe muting some themes and, you know, maybe bringing other things ahead. Do you ever, when you sit down to write, do you think, like, I want to try to, you know, make a corollary of this thing that's happening today? Like, you know, take the election. But, you know, it's a medieval fantasy thing, but you're really trying to reference, you know, uh, a current thing and, you know, everyday life is that or do you just tell a story and then maybe those things sort of express themselves as you're writing as someone who you know consumes media and, and
0: yeah. exists yeah for me it's much more the latter what you're talking about there are definitely political uh elements and ideas that that as a as a human as a writer i am interested in exploring but um i think it's it's not what we're here to do. You know, I'm here first and foremost to tell an entertaining story, make you care about a character. Um, if as a consequence of, of caring about that character's predicaments, uh, you are also, you know, mulling over some, some aspects of, of, a, of a thing that, uh, that applies to your current events, uh, great. You know, I definitely want the fiction to be rich with all of the things that, that are part of, of the world we live in, but um, and especially with the spy, you know, a spy uh, trilogy, you know, covert agency uh, th- there was a lot of commentary in this on aspects of, of things like the war on terrorism uh, you know, tactics like uh, you know, torture and uh, and surveillance. And I, you know, I certainly have, have a lot in this series that touches on that, that with, with Lovecraft and all of his racial baggage uh, there's I knew that there were things that, that, that I wanted to go against the grain of, that I wanted to play with. Uh, but I didn't want it to be um, allegory. I didn't want it to be uh, a vehicle for some kind of political agenda. Um, for me, it's, it's much more important that, that I follow what the story needs and what the characters need. Uh, so I don't know if that answers your question, but... Um, yeah, i try not to let those things drive. the
1: Yeah, I mean, I want, like, you know, because sitting in some of the panels and stuff and, you know, reading, like, say, some of the annotated works and things like that, and, you know, pick out certain things, you say, well, you know, at this time, you know, blah, 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 and this is what was going on, and, you know, in the world, and you can see corollaries, and I just, you know, I wonder as a non-writer, you know, if that's something that, you know, is, and I guess depends on the writer, you know, is that an intentional thing, or is that just, you know, sort of a byproduct of right
0: know sure I knew that uh, in in taking on Lovecraft at, at this time the thing that kind of fascinated me was how little our fears as a society have changed since the 1920s when he was writing and and all of that xenophobic paranoia that he had about uh immigrants and and you know the other and and a lot of that stuff you know you'll hear plenty of insightful commentary (laughs) about how uh his fears that he projects that he expresses through the the exotic you know alien monsters is really related to fears of alien people um i knew that that those were going to be the themes at the heart of what i was doing but um once you make once you set the parameters of something like that, and you know that okay here's why i'm in heres here's what's going to keep me invested and interested in this story is all of this thematic uh resonance that's just built into my premise um, I think once you 've got that it's just going it's it's going to enrich the story in all kinds of ways that hopefully are at times subtle and at times you know might be as blunt as a sledgehammer <laughs> um, but uh you don't have to think about all of that and and try to uh try to prove anything. I think once it's built into the story, the, the interesting thing is just seeing where those, where all of those variables lead you by just bumping into each other, you know, the way that they're just going to do.
1: Okay. And, and you kind of touch on a question that I jotted down just like right before the interview. Um, the, your, your, your protagonist, your female protagonist, Becca is like the anti Lovecraftian protagonist. Now, was that an intentional sort of thing? I mean, you know you've, you've got jason brooks who's also the other main character and you know takes a, a you know a, a similar prominent role in the story but she's you know really kind of the 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 glue that holds everything together you know through at least yeah. first two books i haven't read the last one um, so was that an intentional design like even her grandmother too is as a strong you know female character although you know it's more of an allusion to her um you know like her father left and you know he kind of disappeared so yeah i mean it's, it's noticeable and i i thought that it was cool to to kind of like you know sort of take that and flip it on its head a little bit
0: yeah thanks I it's it's definitely you know one of the intentions i had was was to go against the grain of the typical protagonist lovecraft himself would have had uh so there yeah there's a real dearth of female characters in his fiction at large so i knew i wanted female protagonists. I had written a couple of books with male protagonists. I felt like I was ready to uh, you know, branch out and, and uh, work with a female lead. Uh, so par- part of these, you know, decisions are just personal, like, oh, I you know, I want to try something new for me right now. Um, but yeah, part of it was, I had sort of a list of, of Lovecraftian tropes that I knew I wanted to play with because they're fun. And I had a list of Lovecraftian cliches that I wanted to avoid. <laughs> and I also had this list of places where I knew I was going to deliberately defy his own tendencies um, and, and go against the grain of that. But um, yeah, Becca, I just, I found her interesting because she, uh, she's, she, you know, she deals with depression. She, she has a, a difficult family history. Uh, she has trust issues. Uh, so I knew that there was enough, enough psychological complexity there um, that when she encountered these things that drive people mad and uh, and that tend to shatter your worldview, um, I thought she would be in some ways more resilient than someone who had it all together because she's she's already kind of used to um, not not thinking she's got it all sorted out. You know, uh, she's got a unique way of looking at things. So yeah, she she's the main character through all three books, and and Brooks, uh, you know is sort of your, your Boston homeboy, uh, Irish cop turned government, uh, you know, spook. Um, so, so even he is is not quite your typical like academic hero that you would find in Lovecraftian fiction. I finally do bring in a more, a more traditional in book three, this new <laughs> book. Uh, there, there is a, uh, a professor at Miskatonic who used to be a, a friend of Becca's grandmother when she was alive. And, uh, he's about as close as I get to the, uh, Sort of, you know, putting a Lovecraftian stamp of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, standard character. Uh, but he's not from standard, uh, from central casting either. He's he's kind of, I don't know, peculiar. But um, but yeah, that, that was that was part of the intention. Uh, go with a, a sort of unusual cast and and a more diverse cast than you typically get from Lovecraftian stuff. Cool.
1: Does it, how, is it difficult to, to, to write in that different voice then? So, so obviously being a guy, um, is that, do you look outside, you know, do you go to your wife and be like, ah, you know, I was thinking about, you know, portraying this this way or, or, you know, as, you know, cause we, you know, obviously see things from a certain perspective. So I like how difficult is that to, to bring that to life and make it, you know, seem like it's,
0: you know, real air quotes uh yeah i you know I love writing dialogue. I think that's one of the more fun parts of this job is is uh really getting inside a character's head who is different from you and trying to find their voice their way of of looking at things um, I have to admit with becca i and I've said this before i I loosely modeled her on on a younger version of my wife who was also a photographer um but the the more I wrote Becca, the more she became her own person. And and when I when I see her, when I visualize her, I don't don't see my wife, uh, even even that younger version of her. She's definitely become her own person. She's found her own her own uh, voice along the way, especially after all all that I've, all the shit I've put her through <laughs> over three books. Uh, yeah, she's grown right. in her own way.
1: Cool. Has has writing become any easier over the years for you, or is it still, uh, you know, sort of a struggle to get, you know, virtual pen to paper or you know fingers to keyboards?
0: Uh, I think it's gotten easier. Um, I've, you know, I think with with practice anything gets easier. Um, so just doing a lot of it, just uh, it kind of for me breaks breaks down the. The resistance that um, I don't know if other writers experience quite this in this way, but uh, there's always a certain amount of internal resistance for me in starting a new project. Uh, It's all of those fears that it's going to be horrible, that it's going to fail. So I, I get that before I start a first draft, I get it again before I do my revision, my first revision pass this resistance that, oh, now I'm going to read what I wrote and what if it sucks, you know, (laughs) I'm going to discover now how badly it sucks. Uh, But the more you go through the process over and over again, I think it's just natural that a certain amount of confidence develops from uh, just from the evidence that, well, I've done this before and it worked out. (laughs) People (laughs) liked it and uh, I finished it. um, So that that reinforces uh that somehow you'll find your way through it and and every book is different and every book is you know has its own challenges um and and i definitely struggle uh you know I've got good days and bad days about self-confidence and uh self-doubt um like any writer i think but yeah it gets easier i would say it should
1: yeah, yeah, you hope <laughs> so.
0: Uh, Do you you find
1: that there's any parallel between being a musician and being a writer? Is there any sort of uh,
0: crossover or cross-pollination that happens there? Yes, for me. Um, I think music uses a different part of the brain than writing prose. I spent a lot of time writing lyrics in bands and as a singer-songwriter. So even though I started out writing fiction as a teen, uh, when I got into music, it was always as a songwriter first and foremost. So there, there was always, over all those years, that I was mainly doing music as a, as uh, you know, whether it was as, as a singer-songwriter or in a rock band. Um, I was always thinking about lyrics were very important to me, and uh, I was always attracted to songwriters who had strong lyrics. Those, those were the ones who had the biggest influence on me. So I've, I feel I've always been processing words and always thinking about the musicality of words, the rhythm of words, uh, the sound of them. And uh, if anything, as a fiction writer, my, my more recent process has been about developing story and, and character and, and maybe uh, having a lighter touch with language and learning how to, how to make things simpler and cleaner um, you know, where the words and the music in the words draws less attention to itself um but there are musical themes in all of these books uh strong uh aspects of how sound has magical properties in in the spectrophile series uh my first novel the devil of echo lake was was about a rock star who isn't sure if he's burnt out and losing his mind because he thinks his producer is the devil or if that's what's really going on and is this uh, is this old church that has been converted into a recording studio, actually haunted by a dead witch. <laughs> so <laughs> everything that I had been uh, immersed in as as a musician and as a recording engineer got turned into the uh, sort of fertilizer for that first novel, where I was, to some extent, deconstructing the music business and my experience of it, and trying to make some sense out of that in in a you know sort of uh, therapeutic. <laughs> semi-autobiographical um you know uh almost allegorical way um so yeah music i can't get away from music no matter what cool
1: very cool um how do you think the the world of traditional publishing in in your opinion uh, you know is affected by this new small press and and self-publishing you know uh you know, the bigger houses, do you think they, do you think they care at all? Like, you know, we have this resurgence in weird fiction. I mean, you know, you see them snapping their head around and going, Oh, you know, we need to jump on this. Like in music. Oh, we have Britney Spears. So we need, you know, 47 artists that sound exactly the same. Or, or do you guys have like a lot more leeway and freedom
0: as a smaller press? That's a great question. I I'm kind of waiting to see how that pans out. I, I don't, see evidence that the big five publishers are trying to scoop up weird fiction i think by you know by definition weird is something that they understand is maybe a niche market uh, are you going are you going to really hit those bestseller lists people who you know who buy the girl on the, the girl from the, the girl in the, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, these is, is weird really going to reach, uh, those kinds of sales figures that big five publishers want to see. I, I kind of don't think so. Is there room for it to, to grow and to break into the mainstream and for mainstream stories to be influenced by it? I think, yes, we're seeing that. And I think we'll continue to see more of that. Uh, there's definitely been a real spike in the popularity of, of, Lovecraft mythos uh, pop culture, you know, everything and you know it as a, as a gamer no. um, I Don't know if that's hit its peak yet either But the weird movement has certainly moved well beyond Lovecraft it, There's so many interesting things going on with weird fiction now um, New writers are, are really expanding the boundaries of that I think small presses give us a lot of freedom to uh, to try new things, you know, try try different kinds of stories. Um, it's it's a lot more risk friendly than huge publishing companies. Um, you know, my publisher's been great to me for giving me the. You know, they never they never tell me what to write. Um, I think they can see what may be more more marketable. Uh, you know, this or that. You know, certain ideas may may have a better shot. But um, you know, even down to the cover art, I, I I get a lot of input. I get to really work closely. I've been very fortunate in, in that regard that's not very common to be able to uh, you know influence things on that micro level. I'm a bit of a control freak, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's nice that, that I get to you know have some input out, even on that level
1: yeah well' that's that's, that's cool. Um, do you think that that social media has uh a big influence on on small press you know more so obviously than the than the bigger houses?
0: Great question. I think, yes. Um, I, I'm on social media a lot with the community of other writers and, uh, that can be a really supportive and encouraging community. Most, you know, I find it to be very positive for me. I I tend to avoid drama wherever possible. I know a lot of writers get entangled in, in some really ugly and, and just time sucking, uh, drama on social media but just in terms of of the community of of weird fiction and horror fiction writers who who are interacting and and sharing ideas uh and observations about all this stuff um i i sometimes wonder if it's a little i mean it helps you to have your ear to the wall and know what's going on in the marketplace and and you know maybe find some opportunities uh you know what are some good submission calls right now what's who's you know, working on what um, the networking is, is important for especially small press authors who have to do almost all of their own marketing. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of positives, but the thing I do wonder is uh, it might be too easy to, to uh, think that because, because certain things like weird fiction, certain styles, certain genres Um, are very popular among your, what feels like, a very big group of enthusiastic reader and writer friends who love weird fiction or love horror. It's easy to think maybe that stuff uh, is more viable than it is in the uh, (laughs) larger uh, culture, you know, and in the mainstream. So I try to keep that in perspective too, that, uh, you know, we're all kind of (laughs) delicate, insecure <laughs> creatures who think, Oh man, my friend just, you know, they're getting published with this, this idea, or they just got a movie deal with that idea. You know, I should do something like that. That's to me, that's the danger True. of social media is finding some kind of creative integrity of your own where you're not, you know, yes, it's good to be aware of these shifting winds, but um, you kind of, have you, you've got to do what, what you find exciting and vital, and what you can contribute something to, without without being kind of uh, tempted to to follow someone else's uh, path, and that's that's I think one of the big pitfalls there.
1: Sure, I, I mean I think they've done studies on that now, where like you know people who are on Facebook are less happier than people who you know don't use Facebook and other social medias because you get you know caught up in that in that whole thing. You know with, what what are the Joneses doing? You know, so it, it can be a right a a double
0: edge.
1: Same thing for the podcast too. You know, you see, uh, you know, a lot of it's word of mouth too. So, I mean, not only, you know, on your side of it, trying to find out what's going on and, you know, find out submission, you know, who's taking stories and things like that, but also for, for word of mouth, like, Hey, I read this cool book and you know, here's, here's the author's page or, you know, whatever you should check them out. Um, you know, I, I think like it's, again, it's same thing for podcasts. Like, if, if you enjoy something, if you like something, and this is a call to the audience, I guess, you know, support it, you know, do the reviews, you know, reviews on Amazon for, for authors. is like, it, it's so key to get those books noticed and get them, you know, further up in the stats. So like that, like that aspect is, you have to depend on that
0: so much to, you know, to kind of get things out there and sort of get things noticed. Absolutely. That, that's the, the wonderful thing about it. That's helping so many small presses thrive right now. And so many subcultures to thrive is is how effective that world is for sharing your enthusiasm with your friends and and getting the word out about cool stuff that's that's what I enjoy about going on there not to be advertised to by somebody but to hear from people I respect what what they're you know what do you dig what are you into right now what are you watching what are you listening to what are you reading uh, and yeah that's that's really what what keeps uh, that's what makes it you know writing reviews or just just sharing a post about something that you loved is what lets creators especially independent creators continue to do this. It's uh, yeah so important. Mm-hmm. And and you know I've, I've
1: said this before but like you know
0: for me I, I take
1: that so seriously being a podcaster because. You know, not that we're selling a million books for anybody or, you know, uh, pushing Kickstarters over their funding limits or whatever, but to to be, you know, to serve as a platform for someone to come on, especially cool people like, you know, like you and all, you know, all these people that we've had come on. I mean, we've never... Had a bad experience with a guest. I mean, and you bring you know people are like, cool. We share a thing for weird fiction, or you know, gaming, or you know, whatever it is. So you just you know, you start with a common platform and just yeah. you know are able to have a really cool conversation. Then you hope that people enjoy that, and then you know they go out and check out the things like, oh, that sounds cool, or that guy sounds cool. Let me go you know check out his stuff, and then you you get them with that first one, you reel them in, and <laughs> you, yeah. hope, you hope they stick around.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. No, really, I was psyched that you guys that we met uh, at at the con, and uh, yeah, got to continue the kind of kind of uh, conversations that we all have in places like that when we can physically get together. It's it's fantastic that that's something that uh, I can do right from my office now. <laughs> you know, that wasn't uh, that wasn't really viable for a generation of writers, uh, you know, even in the '90s. Um, I'm not sure how, you know, I was doing music at the time, but I'm not sure how the, uh, small press horror scene, uh, how the community communicated at that time without, without stuff like this.
1: Yeah. Long letters. (laughs) (laughs) Right. um so how does how does weird fiction relate to fabulism uh is it you know i, I don't so i you know going to some of these uh, panels and things and i hear a lot of these things turn around and i'm just sitting in the back like I don't, what the hell are they talking about <laughs>
0: uh you know both of those terms uh are probably defined differently by different writers and readers uh, genre labels. I'm always a little bit suspect of fabulism. Uh, you know, Peter Straub, uh, was on a, an interesting panel about fabulism with, uh, Nedio Okorafor and, and others at Necronomicon. I, I thought that was a really interesting panel, but one thing I wanted to hear them maybe get into a little bit more that was part of the uh, topic description in the program was, uh, know fabulism as as it relates to fables right and uh and there's a lot of hair splitting about fabulism versus magical realism and how how much you know the fantasy element matters and and how far you can go into fantasy elements uh before it ceases to be one thing and becomes another thing yeah yeah um but I, i beyond fantasy elements, I'm, I'm interested in fabulism, uh, in terms of, you know, what do we get from fables that is vital to storytelling? And why is that vital? Uh, and I think to, if I can, if I can try to wrap this into your other part of your question about the mythos, um, you know, the mythos is kind of, I've heard it called an anti-mythology, um, Lovecraft, I think was aware that mankind uses myths as a way of easing his anxiety about the unknown, right If you can imagine a set of gods who are behind these natural forces, um, you know then maybe you have some sense of security about your place in the universe. Uh, so the Cthulhu Mythos tries to do quite the opposite, which is create more anxiety <laughs> right. Right. the fact that maybe these forces are blind to you, indifference to you, or, or worse, you know, would, uh, consider you a, you know, a little morsel, (laughs) um, that, that in the face of an infinite cosmos that, you know, your, your level of intelligence and, and, uh, effectiveness is, is so minuscule that it should drive you insane. Um, so, uh, he's kind of doing what he's kind of doing the opposite of what myths and fables, uh, have done for us traditionally. And I am a fan of stories that use mythic and, and, uh, and fabulous elements. I'm a big fan of the star Wars films. Um, I big kind of, as I mentioned earlier, the Lord of the Rings where Tolkien was trying to create kind of a mythology of Britain that he felt didn't really exist in the first place. Uh, you know, he's got his creation story and everything in the Silmarillion. Um, I haven't really done that kind of world building in my own work yet. Um, but I, I am attracted to the the idea of the hero's journey that everybody knows about now from Joseph Campbell and his influence on so many films and and stories. I don't follow that as any kind of rigid template, but it's, it's to me an interesting, even when I'm working within the Cthulhu mythos and I'm dealing with themes related to whether or not mankind has any significance, you know, what is it that gives human life value, you know, playing with these sort of nihilistic ideas and possibilities and letting my characters contemplate those uh, and maybe despair at those. At the same time uh, I am incorporating elements of myth and fable in the more traditional sense. Um, and that that's, you know, like music, you can invert those things. You can, you can play with those riffs in unexpected ways like uh, can of kind of villain have, a hero's journey And what does that look like uh, So I, I I don't stick to the template But I I do I do like uh, Looking at things through that lens Often
1: Interesting Have you uh, read any Charles DeLint? Are you familiar with him at all? I haven't read him yet, no But I know I the name Yeah, I'd, I don't know if he would be called Fabulism, so urban fantasy um, You know, it's like The stuff that's happening today Like we're having a conversation But there's a spirit in the wires or there's a brownie that lives in the kitchen. And like, you know, the main character kind of gets sucked up into this, you know, other weird thing that's happening. Oh, uh, yeah. I, 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 no
0: offense. Favorite author. I love. <laughs> cool. no, could be. Uh, don't expect to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. That, you know, that that's, that's one of many names on a list that I, uh, am trying to get to. Yeah. <laughs> so. One more point for Charles. I will (laughs) will, uh, try to, yeah, check it out. What do you recommend for uh, a newcomer? Um,
1: The first book I ever read by him was Moonheart. And I tell you, I had to trade paperback. By the time I reached the bottom of the first page, I was completely in the story. Cool. Like just completely blew me away. Uh, But everything he writes is just so, it's so wonderful. And it, I I don't know. I mean, I'm a fanboy, so I mean, I guess take it for what it's worth. But, like, everything that that he writes, there's one or two that maybe aren't, you know, I I don't like as much as maybe some of the other ones. But, you know, it it always gets you, like, in the feels, too. Like, I I, I admit this on the air, but, like, I I can't read one of his books and not tear up at some point while I'm reading the story because you get so involved with the characters and the, and the journeys that they're going through and the things that are happening and then they have, you know, some sort of, revel, you know, resolution to those things. It's so, you know, cathartic. And sometimes the things are not good.
0: <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he, he does it really that? well. I'm going to have to dive in. I think, a yeah, he's seen... and I think after my first book, I think a friend recommended him as someone he thought I would uh, have some affinity with. So, uh, yeah, I will check that out. Thank you for the tip.
1: Cool, cool. I'll have, to, I'll have to throw a link in the show notes, I guess, for that, too. Oh,
0: well, cool, <laughs> yeah. Well, about I, I made a note. Moonheart. Cool.
1: Um, so, I mean, we, you know, we consider uh, Lovecraft the granddaddy of weird fiction. Um, but, you know, it has its roots more in that, you know, that gothic fiction of, you know, like the, the 1800s. Is it, you know, an inversion of that? Like, is it just like a natural outcome of that, you know, sort of weird ghost story kind of thing, do you
0: think? Uh only to a certain extent is my opinion on that uh, Lovecraft was strongly influenced by Edgar Allan Poe, and you've you've got some overlap there where characters are dealing with madness, um, where you know there may be questions of an unreliable narrator, although I think less so with with lovecraft um, he's got that very journalistic feel that. Uh, the character is just trying to document things as clearly as possible, as bizarre as they may seem. And uh, one of his goals was was to uh, basically make each story like an effective hoax, where where the there would be a certain amount of, of realism and uh, and all of all of the data that that creates the sense that uh, that that weird element is even weirder because of its juxtaposition against all of that, but but that it's somehow it goes down easier too, because you bought into the world. I think Stephen King does a great job of that in a very different way, entirely different economy of language um, and, and an entirely different uh, capacity for for character development. But um, Lovecraft, you know, he went through phases too, like any writer. um, He's got all that Lord Dunsany influenced stuff, uh, you know, that, that sort of, uh, Subgenre within his own work of, of fantasy dream world stuff. Um, but I think, I think he, the, the reason I think we're still talking about Lovecraft today, in spite of some of his blind spots as a writer, some of his technical shortcomings as, as a writer, um, you know, and he's masterful at some things. I, I enjoy his work. It's why I'm still reading. It's why it's had such an influence on me, but um, I think he did something kind of new when, when, uh, it's not, it's not the paradigm, the worldview of a ghost story of a supernatural story is often religious. And, uh, and if you, if you buy into, you know, if you, if you go back to Bram Stoker, you've, you've got a way of understanding how to actually kill the vampire, uh, the, the tools of, the church are your weapons, right? Uh, Lovecraft comes along and sweeps all that off the table, and just <laughs> cosmic. You know, he's he's writing at the time when Einstein is, is rewriting the rules of the universe, and and he's saying, you know, we know nothing, and and the you know the idea that we can protect ourselves against against you know dark things that might <laughs> lurk between the stars is <laughs> ridiculous. So that that's what is uh, so important about. His work and where it really extends way beyond the Gothic tradition that may have initially influenced him.
1: Okay, yeah, you know, I just find it's interesting to ask these questions to to guys like you because, like, I I certainly don't know. (laughs) So to be able to get your 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 take on it uh, is is interesting for me and and hopefully for everybody else as well.
0: I'm good at regurgitating things I've heard smarter people say too. That's my talent.
1: There you go. Uh, what makes a story Lovecraftian? I mean, is it like your your you know your Spectre series is like just full out? Give me all the mythos, you know. We're gonna do all the stuff. Do we need that and tentacles and and monsters, or is it more of a, not, a theme not. or
0: feeling? Right. I mean, I wanted to play with the mythos uh, more than I wanted to play with zombies or vampires. Um, I wanted to re. Imagine the Cthulhu mythos, kind of in my own semi-futuristic uh, terms, um, in part so that I could have a bit of that uh, interplay with with Lovecraft's own body of work and with with some of the things that are problematic about him as as a thinker, as as a person. Um, you know, that was a self-conscious decision. A lot of other writers have done similar things recently. Uh, Victor LaValle is a great example of, of doing that brilliantly in Ballad of Black Tom, which deals with uh, the horror of, at Red Hook uh, and and some of Lovecraft's um, racism. There's, there's uh, it's almost becoming a genre unto itself to write Lovecraftian stories as commentary on Lovecraft. <laughs> and yes. again, I didn't want, you know, I wanted to do that in subtle ways by setting the parameters of the story. Uh, with certain kinds of characters in certain kinds of settings um but no absolutely not uh to be to be what we would call Lovecraftian, a story doesn't have to use cthulhu it doesn't have to use the tentacles the monsters uh it doesn't have to make reference to the necronomicon i think um most of the best weird fiction that's out there right now you know you, you might say that someone like laird baron is lovecraftian certainly he's been influenced by him and at times he's dabbled in in more overt lovecraftian stuff but Um, it's, it's really the, the sense of dread, the anxiety, the unsettling, uh, feeling that that things are unhinged, that, uh, the characters don't understand what they've gotten into that, that, uh, unnameable (laughs) forces lurk, you know, just beyond what you think, you know, about reality. That's that to me is what makes things love. That's what makes the story Lovecraftian, or, or if you want to call it weird, Mm. Uh, whether or not you've got the tropes and all those trappings in there, sure.
1: It, and unfortunately, that you know seems to echo, you know, our daily lives more and more every day. You know, you watch the news and, and whatever, in that you know sense of hopelessness and nihilism, and right. you know, it's it, it's almost like it's not even a really. It's like well, at least it's not as fucked up as this, you know. <laughs>
0: Right, you know that's a question that I brought up at uh, Nikon this summer. Uh, we were doing a panel. Uh, I was on a panel with with Laird and John Langan, and he's another brilliant uh, writer. You could classify as weird fiction. Uh, Fisherman was like my favorite book of last year, mm-hmm. um, and that is not Lovecraftian in, in any of the like name-dropping ways, but it very much is uh, as just a a really well-developed. Occult, mythic sort of story. Uh, but yeah, the question that that I had for those guys was, um, is it hard? Is it hard to be, is it harder to be weird? Is it harder to be effective as a weird fiction writer when the world is so fucking weird right now? <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's like, are people, is there even a, is there even a desire for <laughs> among, among the, uh, you know, culture at large, is there a desire for weirdness at times when, we just wish that reality itself was a little less weird. And I don't think any, I, I didn't really get an answer to that at the time. I don't have one for you. Uh, but I, I do think that people find some some kind of uh, therapeutic value in horror fiction and in fantasy fiction, especially in difficult times and uncertain times. I think we want um, we want a little perspective, like at least it's not, Bad as you know, at least I'm, I'm having my coffee and I'm not getting eaten by something. I'm not, uh, I'm not losing my mind. Um, but uh, but yeah, these stories can also help us, to uh, like stories have always done since the campfire. Stories have helped us imagine ways that we might try to make sense of a chaotic world. Ways that we might try to find resilience. Uh, against uh, loss and and grief and horror and uh, and cultish behavior.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, You mentioned horror. Do you you think that horror gets a bad rap as an art form? You know, sometimes you get that feeling like it's just not as worthy. You know, it's not literature. It's not you know, uh, you know, mother just came out and, you know, whether or not you think it's a good movie or not, you're like, Oh, it's brilliant masterpiece or whatever. And then, Oh, you know, it's not a horror film. That's, uh, you know, drama or, you know, they want to categorize it as something else. Cause they don't want to own that. Like, no, this is straight up, you know, a horror, you know, it's, it's a horrific thing. Um, do you think that there's some disconnect there in, in the community of like, you know, literature and entertainment, you know, as far as movies and things?
0: Uh, yeah, there, there's horror has a horrible reputation and I don't see that being redeemed a whole lot. Uh, again, it's easy in an insulated community of people who love it (laughs) to feel like we've come a long way or something. I mean, we've come some way there, there right now there's a real renaissance of, of low budget horror films, just as we've got small presses, uh, doing a lot of interesting things with fiction, um, Netflix streaming has completely opened up the doors to funding for a lot of great horror. Um, there's a lot of crappy horror, and there always will be. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's going to trickle down, You know, if we're going to see more mainstream interest in horror fiction, which is already – I mean, I try to keep in perspective, too, that even reading is uh, – just because everyone I know loves it,
1: yeah. <laughs> doesn't mean that <it.
0: laughs> – that it's uh, the most popular pastime uh, right now. there's so yeah. much entertainment uh, competing for people's time right now, uh, and you know a lot of that is in the little computer in, in everybody's pocket. but um, I don't know my, my friend Paul Tremblay said uh, no genre is as defined by its failures as horror is and it's to me that just says it all. You mentioned horror and people who who might love a great horror novel and they just don't know it the first thing they picture is just the the bloodiest schlockiest slasher film they ever saw a trailer for and it's really hard to get beyond that and convince people that um that this is this is not just some titillating dirty little sideshow of culture this is this is a big part of the main event you know ever since the Greek myths ever since Shakespeare, you know, was, was incorporating fantasy elements, uh, you know, writing Macbeth, uh, you know, writing tragedy. This is tragedy. This is, uh, this is how people confront death, confront mortality, have, you know, a way of, of examining possibilities about, about the afterlife. Uh, you know, what could be more central to our lives, uh, than, than stories that do that, so uh, it pisses me off that, that there's snobbery toward horror still. Um, I think Stephen King has done a lot to to uh, break down some of those barriers by influencing an entire generation of creators, of filmmakers, of storytellers. You know, fucking everybody <laughs> yeah. Yeah. is you know just as J.K. Rowling influenced an entire generation. Um, I I think maybe just by being great, some of those artists. Are, are making a good case uh, that this stuff should be taken a little more seriously, even though we're in it to have fun, I hope. Mm-hmm.
1: But, and, and, you, and you hope stuff like um, Jordan Peele's uh, Get Out, you know, things like that, which, uh, you know, you can classify them as whatever, but it's still, you know, at, it, at its core, you know, more of a horror Uh, you know, a road, you know, a trip down that road of horror than it is anything else. Yeah, it
0: it plays, it plays horror to the health, you know, it's, it's very aware of, of its aims as a horror film, but maybe it all, you know, it's obviously it succeeds because it, it's not being coy at all about also having uh, a, a huge social commentary and yeah, yeah. In, in its premise, right? Um, right. So, yeah, I love that movie.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't actually see it. <laughs>
0: I've heard great things about it, but I haven't actually seen it. <laughs> Highly recommend it, yeah. The, the version I saw on, maybe it was Amazon Prime, had an alternate ending also. And now I forget which was the theatrical ending. Oh, uh, um, so no. You know, there's a commentary there about why they considered the other ending, what they planned you know, what they hoped to accomplish with it and why they changed it. I think I liked the original ending better. <laughs> <laughs> if I've got it right. You know, right. It
1: well, and you wonder how much, uh, you know, the studio, you know, they go out and, then they, and they preview the movies. Like, the original Clerks, Dante gets shot. Like, that's the end of the movie. Like, how fucked up is that? <laughs> um, and, and you wonder, like, you know, it just wow. doesn't play well in the theater, but sometimes, like, I enjoy something that leaves you like damn really like that's that's it you know like it gives you a totally different experience that's you know entirely valid you know maybe not as satisfying and it's like oh okay cool everything just worked out you know some because everything doesn't always work out and sometimes you know you need to to have that
0: reinforced i guess i don't know maybe it's me i know i totally agree uh know we've been so conditioned it's just like again to bring things back to music uh i i have often wondered do certain chords and intervals and resolutions of harmony in music do they work because ever since you're a baby you've heard these patterns over and over again right so it's is it learned is it nurt is it nurture right or is there something about the nature of of sound where i mean, clearly dissonance you know the mathematical relationships of dissonant notes is very different from harmonious notes. Uh, is there something inherent in that structure that mimics the structures of other symmetrical and harmonious things in nature patterns that we find even in the development of the human brain right um, but when it comes to story structures also we've we've been conditioned so much to uh, to expect the the resolution and the happy ending uh, you know that the good will prevail and uh, yeah, it's good to get the sucker punch every now and then and <laughs> be reminded that uh, I think we go to stories because in life we don't have those reassurances. We, we want it, rightly so, from, from make-believe a lot of the time, but we shouldn't get it every time. And, and I, I always feel like if, if I can't make readers worry and, and wonder whether or not they're going to, you know, whether or not everybody's going to come out okay, if, if it's too safe, I'm not doing my job certainly as a horror writer. But I remember... uh, Are you muted?
1: I am. The cat hit the button on the thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
1: No, I was going to say, it's like gaming to a certain extent in that regard. Like, nobody wants a TPK, but sometimes you need a TPK. Otherwise, like, you know, what are you doing? You just show up. There's never any, you know, drama inherent in anything that you're doing if nothing is ever really going to happen, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: So. I, m- I remember having to explain to my son when he was going through the Disney movie phase that, well, this, you know, they, they get, <laughs> kids get really wound up. They're supposed to. <laughs> uh, he, he didn't want to watch, you know, you get to that moment of crisis at the three-quarter mark. And I really had to explain it to him in storyteller terms and just be like, look, look, you know, pause the thing. Look at where, look at where the, you know, where the bar is right now. You're three-quarters of the way through this story. And that's where they always make you worry that everything's gone wrong. And, you know, like every other movie you've seen, <laughs> <laughs> next they're going to overcome, you know, so it's, it's formulaic, but uh, it's, it's, you know, for a reason, I guess.
1: Yeah, Disney might not be the best example because it's horrible from the start. You know, Bambi's father's shot, you know, dead. The mother's shot. You know, Dumbo's, you know, single parent. Like, everything is horrible. Like, Disney hates your parents.
0: Oh, (laughs) absolutely. And we talked about that, too. Me and my kid talked about how, um, you know, it's always orphans. It's always kids whose parents get whacked (laughs) in the beginning (laughs) because that, you know, if, if your parents are taking care of you, how are you going to have any drama? How are you going to have any tension? How are you going to have an adventure? You know, if we're going to find inner strength and, and you know, some kind of journey toward uh, towards heroism and self-sufficiency, yeah, we've got to take away the support system. Um, we talked about that uh, at a convention too, about apocalyptic uh, fiction. is sort of like taking away the, the support system of, of society itself, right, of, of government or whatever. It's sort of like, you uh, a uh surrogate for for killing the parent in the Disney movie, but my boy got to the point where we'd put on a movie, and he could sense within the first few minutes, like, oh shit, this is going to be one of those. Yeah, the parent, no, I don't want to see it. Turned it off, turned off. I'd be like, what? I forget what movie we were watching, but it was literally like one minute into it, and there's parents in a car with a kid, and there's nothing going on that isn't perfectly ordinary. And he's like, no, tur- I don't want to see this kind of movie. Turn it off. I'm like, oh. It just started. Let's just give it a try, right? Literally 30 seconds later, bam! <laughs> <laughs> Car crash, flips over, dead parents. So I can't blame him. But You didn't take him to see Annabelle, did you? <laughs> no, this might have been Pete's Dragon or something. I, we didn't watch it after that, so. <laughs> a little vague to me now. My, my daughter and her boyfriend
1: wanted to go see Annabelle Creation or whatever it was. I was going to go see Dunkirk cause I started about the same time and we got there a little late and I was missing the beginning. I was like, ah, screw it. I'll just go see Annabelle. And like, that's the beginning of the movie. Like parents dead or no, the kid died. The kid died. Oh, spoilers. <laughs> so it's already been out for a couple of months. Um, yeah. So like same sort of thing. Just kind of like, I mean, you knew something bad was going to happen. It's a horror movie, but right yeah it was sort of that like normal like whatever scene and you know horrible thing happens and then more horrible things happen along the way so
0: <laughs> right, yeah
1: we're, we're talking about gaming, or I'm talking about gaming a little bit. The, your Spectre series reminds me a little bit of Delta Green, at least tangentially, like, you know, monolithic, uh, you know, secret government organization that's dealing with these weird, you know, mythos things or whatever horrible things. Um, ha- have you ever played Delta Green, or are you a, a gamer at all yourself, call Cthulhu or anything? Uh,
0: no, I, I'm not a gamer. Um, I'm curious. I wish, you know, if I had more time on my hands. I wish I had more time for video games, too. Um I, I would like to play Call of Cthulhu. I'd like to uh, you know check that out. I, I, I became aware of Delta Green after writing the first Spectra book, Red Equinox. Uh, I was on the Lovecraft Easy and and they started saying, you know, this, this reminds us of Delta Green. And I was like, all oh, right, well I need to write that down and look it up. Uh, also the laundry files, not not that that's yeah. gaming related, but um, you know, that gets mentioned a bit as a government agency dealing with Cthulhu mythos type stuff. Mm-hmm. Although you know there's a lot more humor in in strauss's uh take on that uh you know in and find british form there uh, so no uh not not really influenced by delta green but curious about it
1: Cool. yeah we we had chain on when the when the kickstarter was was out i guess last year i suppose um yeah it it's it's really dark. Like, I knew it was dark, and then he sent me the PDF, and I started going through it. I'm like, wow, this is fucked up. Like, cool. Really, really bad. Really good, but bad, you know. Okay. In the game
0: yeah,
1: Yeah. Def, definitely definitely worth checking it out. <laughs> maybe, maybe you get some time. Maybe we get get you in on a game.
0: Yeah, see, I feel like I would be just the biggest bummer to have involved because I know nothing, <laughs> and you guys spend all your time training me, educating me. Uh, I don't know. My, my son wants to try Dungeons & Dragons with the dice, uh, which I haven't played since I was a teen. So I, I, may, I may find my way back to gaming by introducing him to that at some point.
1: That, that's awesome. My, I've been trying to get my kid to play since 4th Edition came out in 2008, and we jumped back into it, and she's resisted every attempt and then a couple of months ago she was like where's your book set i want to look i think i want to play And i'm like oh yes so i started building terrain i bought books for fifth edition and all this stuff yeah we haven't played
0: <laughs> you have to I, I want
1: to <laughs> yeah. so I, I even had one of my uh, one of my gms like hey you know you know, I'll run a game. I'll run a one shot. You know, tell her. You know, jump on. we'll you know, we'll do a thing, and she's like, ah, I don't know if I
0: want to do that. I'm like, oh, come on! You got all these resources. She should take advantage of it. I know. I know. That's what I'm saying. I Wait, would. Love when and where else is she going to get that opportunity?
1: Hmm. Yeah, and you know, and that's the thing. Like, you do, it, and if you don't like it, then you don't like it, and you know, you move on from that, and you know, maybe you don't give it a second thought. But she loves to write. You know she reads. She's in. You know she does fanfic and all this kind of stuff. So I, oh,
0: I think you know, she would absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah. Got to, got to give it a try.
1: Yeah, one of these days. <laughs> I don't want to push too hard because then it'd be like I'm just not. I told you I'm not doing it. Yeah. Forget it. Yeah. No. That's the parental
0: balancing act.
1: Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, what are you? What are you reading these days? Anything? Uh, anything fun and exciting?
0: Um. Boy, I've got a pile. that that is is very very exciting but if i ever get to them all um i you know what happened to me was i tried like so many of my friends into horror who were influenced by king growing up i uh thought i would reread it before the film came out and you know it's a thousand pages long oh yeah at least um my wife got me the really cool Cemetery Dance uh, 25th Anniversary hardcover edition, right? Uh, So that sat in the slipcase for a long time, and I finally started getting into it over the summer. But I also had, you know, conventions over the summer and trying to finish a book over the summer. Uh, And then I was reading something to blurb for somebody. So it's been a real crawl. I'm only, like, 350 pages into it. And, like, not much happens in the first couple hundred pages. (laughs) Uh, So I saw the movie. I enjoyed it. uh, But I – I am still slowly wading through what I know it, I'm going to love. I've, it's the third time I've read it, uh, but I haven't read it since the 90s, so I, it's kind of fresh again. I'm rediscovering that. That has put a lot of other books that are in my TBR pile uh, on the whole right now. And there's always there's, – there's stuff I'm, I'm really curious about that I'll never get to. <laughs> and There's books by friends that I feel guilty I haven't gotten to, even though I'm sure they're great. Um, but what else, uh, I mean, I've got to have something interesting I can, I can mention besides, uh, besides it, <laughs> um, That's topical. I, read, uh, <laughs> I recently read the weird company by Pete Rollick. That was really good. Nice. Um, I've got, I, I loved uh, swift to chase by Laird Baron. I uh, read that not long ago. I mentioned The Fisherman by John Langan. I've got Experimental Film by Gemma Files. I'm looking at that right here on my pile of things that I am chomping at the bit to uh, to get to. Um, oh, uh, The Forgotten Girl by Rio Yours was a great supernatural thriller, and uh, that, that came out a few months back. I uh, highly recommend that. Cool.
1: I'm, I'm reading one of Pete's books, too, and the name escapes me at the moment. It's the... Uh, um, Herbert West collection. Uh, I think it was put
0: out by uh, Chaosium. Yeah. Okay. An anthology. Pete edited that, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. He's he's great with the reanimator stuff. Yep.
1: I'm I'm, I'm trying to make up for a lost time now since uh I didn't have enough weird fiction in my uh <laughs> in my collection. Sure. I, I, so I said to Cody, I feel like such a fraud, like you've been on the show, we've played, played a game together, like I don't have any of your books, like give me some, give me a couple of books, <laughs> like give me anything Yeah. Uh, all right. I, I mean, I, we, we probably do this for another hour or two, but like, you know, I guess it's probably getting late for you
0: <laughs> Yeah, I get up early in the morning, yeah. but thanks for having me on, it's been really fun You, you, know, you had great questions, I uh, really enjoyed the conversation
1: Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, you know, I I try to be as prepared as I can be. Um, you know, cause sometimes it's not often, but sometimes you get a guess that doesn't, is not very verbose and it's like, Ooh, okay. I hope I, good thing. I have a lot of
0: things prepared for today. (laughs) Well, you know, writers usually just have to do is open their mouth and words will fall out. Right. (laughs) Game designers too. (laughs)
1: Cool. I appreciate you coming on. This, this was a blast having you, having you on and, and getting a chance to, you know, hang out and just,
0: you know, kind of chew the fat for a little while. Yeah, great time. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks again for, uh, for letting me, uh, you know, plug the new book. I uh, hope some people will check out uh, the trilogy. And um, yeah, look forward to meeting you again at the next uh, Necronomicon and having a beer in person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the name of that book is
1: Cthulhu Blues. It's put out by Journalstone Press. Uh, There's a link in the show notes. You can pick that up on Amazon right now. It's available. So go ahead. You can do that. We'll wait as we're getting ready to like wind the show up. Go ahead and, you know, throw it in your cart. It's fine. Got a couple of minutes here. or or do later, whatever, whatever you want to do. Just make sure you pick it up. Pick up the other two books too, Red Equinox and Black January. You're not going to be disappointed. They're a ton of fun, uh, full-on Lovecraftian. It's a -a thrill-a-minute joy ride. (laughs) Thanks, John. Absolutely. Um, Before I let you go, I'm going to throw out all of our details as well. You can find this and all of our other awesome content at legendsoftabletop.com. We're on Twitter at Legends Tabletop. Uh, You can find us on Instagram, YouTube, we're all over the place. Just punch us into Google. You'll find us Uh, ratings and reviews on iTunes and things like pod pod chaser or whatever your pod catcher of choices are super helpful. Just like those Amazon reviews for Doug Wynn, Uh, when you leave reviews for the podcast, that helps us become a little bit more visible, brings more people to the show so uh, we appreciate when you do that tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your grandmother she might find something on there she likes you never know, maybe she played D&D back in the the early 80s when she was a young lass, so uh, please do that we appreciate it, thanks again for Doug to Doug for coming on, it was an absolute pleasure, thank you John All right, and we'll catch you all next time this podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network